to Parkside Green's Bible study on Lessons from Solomon. I'm Pastor Steve, very excited to explore God's Word as it's found in 1 Kings chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10, which will remind us just how crucial it is to keep first things first. It's just easy for us, isn't it, to pursue secondary things in life and lose our focus on what's most important. God's Word tells us to keep our priorities in order, to attend to what matters most, rather than getting sidetracked by putting second things first or even putting third things first, which can cause us to drift. So we'll follow this theme of first things first as we study our passage under three headings. First, we'll look at an important reminder, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Secondly, we'll look at an impressive resume, chapter 9, verses 10 to 28. And third and finally, an interesting relationship in chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. So we begin with an important reminder in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. For a couple of decades now, Solomon has been focused on construction, right? Seven years of building the house of the Lord, 13 years of building his own king's house, and all that he desired to build. But as soon as Solomon had finished this construction phase of his reign, the Lord appeared to him a second time, just as he had appeared to Solomon two decades earlier at Gibeon, toward the start of his reign as king. Direct speech from God to Solomon was pretty rare in his life, right? Just twice in 20 years. But Solomon's no longer a young, inexperienced king pleading with God to help him govern the Lord's people. He's now perhaps more middle-aged. Uh, he, he's accomplished a lot as a king, right? He's got a smooth-running administration. He, it provides plenty of food for his court. He, he's grown in his knowledge of proverbs and songs and plant life and animal life. And he supervised the construction of the glorious temple. He's built a huge palace complex. And with all these accomplishments in place, Solomon needs an important reminder. So the Lord appears to Solomon a second time. Yes, the Lord has heard Solomon's prayer and consecrated the temple, put his name there. God's eyes and heart will always be at the temple. The temple's going to represent God's presence, his name to Israel. And God's always going to see what's happening there, his eyes representing his knowledge. And God will respond appropriately to their prayers, right? His heart representing his emotions and decisions. God has heard Solomon's prayer from chapter 8, and he was pleased that the temple was in place. But, verse 4, as for Solomon himself, he needs the important reminder that if he will walk before the Lord as David did, with integrity of heart and uprightness and obedience to God's commandments, then the Lord would establish Solomon's royal throne over Israel forever, just as the Lord had promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you live like your father David, then you will be established and blessed like your father David. God reminds Solomon that wholehearted obedience will bring great blessing. Wholehearted obedience will bring great blessing. God will be faithful to his promises, and likewise, Solomon and his descendants must be faithful to the Lord, as we see starting in verse 6. Because if Solomon or his children turned aside from following the Lord by 
not keeping his commandments and instead served and worshipped other gods, then the Lord would bring great judgment. Disobedience would lead to the loss of the promised land, the destruction of the temple, and the shaming of Israel's international reputation. As soon as the empire had been built and the temple palace complex had been all completed in verse 1, Solomon was warned that it could all be destroyed. If Solomon and future Israelites drifted into idolatry, this newly constructed glittering gold temple that the Lord had filled with his glory could just become a heap of ruins. And on this scenario of idolatry, passers-by would hiss or scoff at Israel and their temple, realizing the Lord had brought disaster on the people because they had abandoned the Lord for other gods. God is reminding Solomon of what he'd said back in Deuteronomy 28.37. Check it out for yourself, that if Israel disobeyed the Lord, they would become a horror a proverb, a byword among all the peoples. See, right now, Israel's in a good place. They're a proverbial for their wisdom and prosperity. But if they turned away from the Lord, they would become proverbial for their destruction and exile. So the completed temple was no guarantee of God's automatic blessing. Solomon and Israel were currently at the height of their golden age, right? God had granted them rest from their enemies, abundant food, the the all-time wisest king, a glorious temple, a gorgeous palace complex. And in the midst of all that prosperity, they needed the reminder that everything could change if they turned away from following God. God spells out for them in great detail just how high the price tag of idolatry would be. And there's grace in this warning, isn't there? Right? Just keep obeying, keep enjoying the Lord's favor. They need the crucial reminder to keep first things first. And that includes keeping the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. It's a good reminder to us also. Keep first things first and the Lord is first. And that reminder is especially important in light of Solomon's impressive resume, which is detailed in chapter 9, verses 10 to 28. Now, Solomon's about halfway through his 40-year reign as king, and we're given more detail about his ongoing relationship with Hiram, king of Tyre. As we read back in chapter 5, originally Solomon had sent uh, Hiram wheat and oil in exchange for cedar and cypress. So it was kind of a food for, for lumber deal. Now, in what may be a new deal, or perhaps changing terms of the old deal, Hiram was also giving Solomon gold, like about 9,000 pounds of gold, and Solomon was giving Hiram 20 cities, just a bit south and west of Tyre in the region of Galilee. But when Hiram went and inspected those cities, he was none too pleased with the deal. These cities took on the name of Kabul, which may derive from the Hebrew word for worthless, reflecting the value of the cities, or may derive from the Hebrew word for fettered, reflecting Hiram feeling kind of fettered or stuck in this uneven relationship with Solomon. And then we're told, starting in verse 15, that Solomon used his draft of forced labor 
to build not only the temple and the palace, but also to build the Milo, which was a retaining wall of terrace. So it was fill on the steep slopes of Jerusalem. And Solomon's drafted labor also built, rebuilt six named cities, right? Hazar, Megiddo, Gezer, Lower Beth Haran, Baalath, and Tamar. And commentators note that these half dozen cities were key military defenses for Israel. So he's shoring up their military defenses. And then there were Solomon's storage cities as well for his chariots and his horsemen. So in sum, we see Solomon's impressive resume continuing to expand as he built well beyond the confines of Jerusalem, spreading throughout Israel. And Solomon's slave labor, we're told, came from non-Israelites who had not been driven out of the land. The Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Mosquito Bites. Just kidding. These laborers were supervised by 550 chief officers, probably reflecting Solomon's organizational wisdom. By contrast with the slave labor that came from their enemies, the Israelites themselves served as Solomon's army, right? His military, his commanders, his captains, his horsemen, his soldiers, etc. And we're also told that Pharaoh's daughter moved into the house that Solomon built for her. Second Chronicles 8.11 adds that Solomon was aware that Pharaoh's daughter should not live in the holy places to which the ark of the Lord had come. Solomon had a sense of the holiness of the Lord, and he also had a sense of the need to make burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord on the altar in the temple. He did that three times a year. The parallel in 2 Chronicles 8.13 tells us this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Not only that, but with Hiram's help, Solomon also built a fleet of ships, uh, apparently down at the southern tip of Israel on the shore of the Red Sea. And from there, Hiram's experienced sailors would join Solomon's servants on sea voyages south to Ophir, where they procured over 400 talents. That's some 30,000 pounds plus of gold. And at its current value, I calculated that would represent somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 million of gold. Now, on the one hand, we might see this as just another part of Solomon's impressive resume. I mean, after all, back in chapter 3, verse 13, the Lord had promised to give Solomon riches and honor as well as wisdom. But on the other hand, we may begin to wonder whether $700 million worth of gold is a violation of Israel's, the law that was for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, which says that the king shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And we're going to explore that concern in more detail next week, but for now we simply observe that even a highly successful king with an impressive resume must continue to follow the Lord. Despite his success in rebuilding cities and profitable international trade, Solomon needed to keep first things first, and the Lord is first above any accomplishments or resume. We move lastly to our final section on an interesting relationship in chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. 
Here we shift from sea travel, moving away from Israel by boat down to Ophir, to land travel toward Israel by camel. Most place Sheba in the South Arabian Peninsula, probably where Yemen is today. It's over 1,200 miles from Jerusalem, a trip of several weeks. So what prompted then the Queen of Sheba to take this long trip? <laughs> Answer, the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. The fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She had a hunch that only a great God could produce such a great king. Only a great God could produce such a great king. Well, maybe through Solomon's ships, right, in nearby Ophir, the queen somehow knew of his reputation and she wanted to test his wisdom in person with some hard questions. We can imagine her, can't we, rehearsing her, her stumper questions along the way, prepping for this wisdom contest. How is he going to answer that one, I wonder? <laughs> well, when the queen gets her meeting with the famous king, she tells him everything on her mind, doesn't hold back at all, and amazingly, Solomon answers all of her questions. He's never stumped. She heard his wisdom, and she also saw or observed his wisdom. Right? Solomon's magnificent palace, ample food, numerous court officials, attentive servants and cupbearers, their striking clothing, the burnt offerings in the temple, it just all left the queen breathless. She had arrived in Jerusalem, remember, breathing out hard questions, and now there was no more breath in her. The queen tells Solomon that back in Sheba, she had heard incredible reports of his words and his wisdom, but she'd been a doubter initially, and now that she had seen it with her own eyes, she realized she didn't know the half of it. His wisdom and prosperity went way beyond the reports. The queen sees how happy are those who serve under Solomon, have the privilege of hearing his wisdom all the time, 24-7. Not only that, but this non-Israelite queen blesses the Lord, Yahweh. Solomon's God, who had delighted in Solomon and put him on Israel's throne. She says it's out of a forever love for Israel that the Lord has made Solomon king to execute justice and righteousness. So this presumably pagan queen saw somehow that Solomon's wisdom was God-given. And she's pleased to give him 9,000 pounds of gold, the same as Hiram, back in chapter 9, as well as many precious gemstones and abundant spices and maybe included incense, more than the land of Israel had ever seen. Solomon, in turn, gave her all that she desired, whatever she asked for. And they had an interesting relationship. And lastly, there's this one final note on how Hiram's fleet brought back from Ophir not just gold, but also precious stones and almond wood, which is apparently a luxury hardwood. Uh, maybe it's something like a red sandalwood or Grecian juniper, we're not sure. But this unique almond wood was used to make supports for the temple and the palace, as well as musical instruments, lyres and harps that could be used in worship. Now, looking back at the big picture, I think we can see that the Queen of Sheba 
is a clear answer to Solomon's prayer in chapter 8, verse 41, right? She is a non-Israelite, a foreigner who comes from a far country because she's heard of the Lord's great name and mighty hand and outstretched arm. And it's part of God's purpose, his great purpose, remember, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. Chapter 8, verse 43 and verse 60. When we follow the Lord, sometimes others want to ask us questions and are attracted to know our God. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 42, and also in Luke eleven thirty-one, this queen came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here in Jesus. Right? The generation that lived when Jesus did have the direct revelation of the Son of God in person, just as we have a revelation of Jesus in the written accounts of his life in the Gospels. Solomon had more wisdom than any earthly king before him or after him. So the queen of Sheba was right to make every effort to seek him. But Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. So we're even more right to make every effort to seek him. Again, there's so much to learn here, but my 20 minutes are just about gone. So let's finish by quickly considering five possible applications. Number one, each person and each generation must commit themselves to following the Lord and keeping his commands. Right? Solomon couldn't rest on his father David's faith, and we can't rest on our parents' faith. Each person and each generation must commit themselves to following the Lord and keeping his commands. Secondly, thank God for his gracious warnings about the high price of turning away from him. Right? God warned Solomon and he warns us. I think about uh, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, which says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's grace in those warnings, right? Thank God for his gracious warnings about the high price of turning away from him. Thirdly, Make sure that in the midst of any accomplishments that we achieve, that we keep first things first by keeping the Lord first. Keep first things first by keeping the Lord first. Number four, pray for God-given wisdom to answer those who ask us questions, pointing them ultimately to the Lord's wisdom in his written word. But pray for God-given wisdom to answer those who ask us questions. Right? And fifth and finally, praise Jesus in whom we find the ultimate wisdom of God. Look over 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Praise Jesus, in whom we find the ultimate wisdom of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we're such a forgetful people, you constantly remind us to keep first things first, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you're going to take care of everything else. 
We thank you also for the grace and your warnings that you give to keep us from going astray. Guard us, we pray, from getting carried away with our accomplishments and striving to build impressive earthly resumes. Help us instead, we ask, to seek your wisdom and to pass on your wisdom in our conversations with those who are outside of your covenant family. We praise you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. May his name be exalted, even as we pray in his name now. Amen.